0: verse 6. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirits, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared
1: I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it difficult to stay the course. By that I mean that I make a commitment, whether it's a commitment to myself or to my spouse, to my kids, to my work. I make a commitment and I think it's a good idea and I'm committed to it in my head, but sometimes my heart has a hard time following through. Uh, diet is an easy example. By national standards, I am obese. And I have tried numerous different diets to try to get down to a healthy weight. Wouldn't that be nice? I know in my head that I would feel better if I was at a healthy weight. I know that I would be healthier. It would be better for me physically if I was at a healthy weight. And so why can I not simply commit to carry through on something that I know cognitively? My head says this is a good idea. I know it is better for me. And yet, I find myself then staring at the cheddar caramel popcorn from Costco, right? Or looking at the gelato in the freezer and thinking, hmm, is that really an important commitment? Do I really, is that really going to bring me happiness? And whether it's stress or whether I simply want the biochemical hit of something, I, I give up on that commitment, right? I don't stay the course. Otherwise, I would be, uh, I'd be at a healthier weight. Now, it may not be food for you, right? It could be any number of things. I tend to be pretty disciplined when it comes to money. Maybe you're not, right? We have different areas in which we have trouble staying the course in what we commit to. Why is that? Why is it that there's that disconnect in knowing what we should do and then actually following through with that? It's that disconnect that the church is actually struggling with. They They've been baptized as followers of Jesus, Gentiles who have converted to follow him. But as suffering has increased, they are uh, running the temptation of moving away from Christ, of either deciding not to worship this new God at all, or simply deciding to worship him very privately and pulling away from the world. And in either case, Peter says it's it's disastrous. It's not what you're called to. You're not living out your faith in the way that you should be. What Peter is going to, the way in which he's going to challenge the early church is to say two things this morning that we'll see in our, our passage. One is that Jesus is king. And the second, that it, your your path is one of suffering. It's your school. It's how you grow up. Right. Jesus is your king, and suffering is your school. Right. How do we see him unpack these things? Well, before we really get into the nature of how he impacts them, I want to think a little bit about what keeps us from Uh, what what exists in our hearts that moves us away from acknowledging these truths that Jesus is king and that suffering is is our school in terms of thinking that Jesus is king we struggle because if he's king we think he should be protecting us and looking out for our own best interests and then we find ourselves in a place of suffering when we find ourselves in a place of suffering we think do we really trust this king is this king really powerful we can think of somebody like Ted Ted is in the church considers himself a faithful follower of Jesus, but he's very frustrated with life. He's frustrated at work because his boss is a micromanager and is always on his case. And he goes home and he's frustrated at home because he feels disconnected from his wife. He doesn't think that she's supportive. And so Ted says, "Well, I'm going to try to be faithful in the midst of all this. I'm going to pray, I'm going to seek to be obedient." And he does this for a while, but nothing changes. He just sits in the same place. And as time goes by, he gets more and more frustrated that God hasn't done anything. And so he starts to look for other options in which he can experience some break, some freedom, some pleasure. And so he starts to drink. And at first, it's just not a big deal. It's a little bit. Just to take the edge off. And one becomes two. And two becomes four. And lo and behold, he finds himself turning to something other than than Christ in the midst of his suffering. He finds salvation or rescue or escape in something else. Now, what Ted has decided to do, right, initially, when things are bad at work and bad at home, but he's trying to remain faithful, he is suffering, but he's suffering for righteousness. He's suffering in the midst of trying to be faithful. But when he turns the corner and decides to worship something else and look for life in something else, now he's suffering for unrighteousness. Right? And this is Peter's concern for the church. You see, what's ironic is either way, there's suffering. And in fact, the suffering is going to be worse for Ted as he suffers for unrighteousness. Why? He's hung over at work all the time. His productivity gets down. Goes down, his boss is even more on his case. And you think his wife is going to respect him more for checking out all the time? Right? And so his suffering will actually increase, but it's suffering for unrighteousness. Right? And this is, Peter says... Peter recognizes that all of the people who have converted into the church from the Gentile background have lived in that way. Now they've come to Christ and they think, you know, Christ isn't doing all for me that I wanted. In fact, my suffering, my misery has increased as a result of following this Jesus. And so I'm tempted to go back to the way in which I used to live. And this is what Peter is addressing now. If you look at verse three, for the time that has passed suffices. For doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. This is what characterizes the life of the Gentiles from which the churches have turned. And now they're suffering for righteousness' sake. And Peter's concern is that you're going to go back. You're going to decide that there's life there rather than in Christ because Jesus isn't doing all that you want him to do for you. And so, uh, in the example of Ted, you know, Peter's going to be saying that Jesus is king. Well, Ted says, I don't care. I don't really respect his authority. I simply am going to do what I want to do. The other thing that Peter is telling us is that suffering is, uh, is actually our school. It's our path by which really remarkable things uh, happen. And you see this very clearly in, in chapter 4, verse 1. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay, Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous, has suffered in the flesh. He suffered for righteousness that He might bring you back to God. What should you expect? The same thing. To be unified to Christ and identify with Him is to suffer in the flesh for righteousness' sake. Oh, well and good, but we don't like that either. Right? Do we not prefer an easier road? one that requires less of us. Tony uh, Carleo is an example of, I think, sometimes the way that our hearts go. Tony, uh, he was born in an affluent home, but never really got his footing. And in his 20s, he just wanted to be rich and didn't really want to work. And so he spent his 20s in Pueblo, Colorado, and he did all kinds of things. He Managed a limo company, he was a DJ, he sold drugs, he, uh, he flipped houses and eventually started investing all of his money in flipping houses uh, just in time for the real estate bubble to burst and lost everything that he had and was penniless and frustrated and so he had to move in with his dad in Las Vegas and found himself every time he would make some money he found himself gambling it away over and over again and all Tony wanted to do was be rich. So he decided, I'm not going to work. That doesn't sound like fun. I'm going to rob a casino. And so he robs one and gets away with it. Then he robs uh, about a million and a half of poker chips from the Bellagio, which makes him uh, very wealthy in one location in the world, the Bellagio, right? A Bellagio poker chip isn't going to do you any good anywhere but at the Bellagio. So he moves in and starts to live as a king. Now, frankly, Tony isn't the sharpest tool in the shed. And eventually, he's spending chips at a level that he couldn't have possibly won and is realized to be the person who had robbed uh, the, the casino and goes to jail uh, as a result of it. But this is what, when Tony uh, thinks about his life, this is what he says. My father, my stepfather, my uncle. By the way, his, his dad was a high-ranking judge in Las Vegas who did not get reelected as a result of Tony's uh, indiscretion. My father, my stepfather, my uncle, they all had money. Nice suits, nice cars, nice houses, Collier says, but they all worked hard to get it. I didn't have time for that. I was too impatient. Well, you know, we all might smirk a little bit at Tony for his foolishness, but I think there's strong correlation between Tony's foolishness and our foolishness spiritually. In other words, God says this is the path of what it means to actually become like Jesus. It's a path of suffering. We say, I'm a little impatient for that. Let's just throw up some prayers and attend church and really, you know, God, you sprinkle your magic fairy dust and make me holy. And that's not the way it works, even though it may be the way we would like it to work. So Peter's saying, Jesus is king, and your path, your school, is suffering. We don't like either of those ideas. We want to be our own king And we don't want to suffer. And so we we have a natural inclination to buck against God's economy. His design for our salvation. But Peter has another idea. And in this, he wants us first to see that Jesus is not only king. He's the king over the entire universe. And Peter's going to go about this in a fairly clever and creative way. But it's one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. Just for fun, we're going to throw two very difficult passages together today. And uh, just to get you warmed up, uh, Martin Luther said this about our passage this morning. Uh, this is certainly a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So if we end up not being sure what the apostle meant, we're in good company because Martin Luther didn't either. But uh, fortunately, we actually have some information that Martin Luther didn't have. And so we might be able to make a little bit uh, better progress. The really hard part is, uh, which the church has struggled with for a long time, is verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. And so you probably want to look there and take note of what Peter is saying. He's speaking of Jesus, the righteous who has been uh, sacrificed for the unrighteous, that we might be brought to God. Jesus is put to death in the flesh. In other words, his earthly existence comes to an end. He's made alive in the spirit. His cosmic reign begins. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, okay. Christ went and proclaimed something to uh, the spirits in prison, uh, related to the generation of Noah. What in the world is Peter talking about? What did Jesus say? When did He say it? Uh, you know, what these are the questions that are circulating in uh, the early church. Now, as the early church approaches this passage. They're driven by two questions, and what you see is in the church. Uh, how to understand this passage is really driven by theological questions, more so than necessarily by really wrestling with the text or exegesis. And the two questions that troubled the early church were uh, these, as related to this passage. Number one: How do you apply the grace of Jesus Christ to Old Testament saints? Right. In other words, the saints have died; they're buried. Right? How are we going to apply what's happened in the resu- death and resurrection of Jesus to them? Two, where is Jesus and what is he doing between death and resurrection? Right? Does he go out for a sandwich? Does he descend into hell? Does he go up to heaven? What is he doing in this time period? The early church is wrestling with these questions, comes to the passage in First Peter and think it offers some answers. And so early theologians, particularly out of the Alexandrian school, which means they lived in Alexander, Alexandria, Egypt, uh, it came up with the theory which uh, becomes known as the harrowing of hell, which means that after Jesus died, he went to the place where all the dead people, souls, are kept, proclaimed victory, right? Those who had faith were redeemed and brought to heaven, and those who did not have faith remain or actually descend into what is actually hell. This, um, this becomes somewhat influential in the early church, and it's actually what you see in the Apostles' Creed, right? When we confess that Jesus... Uh, descended into hell. Now, even in the early church, not everybody agreed with this. In fact, Augustine pushed back against it, and he was very concerned that we, uh, about the finality of death. Right? In other words, and I think you'll feel Augustine's concern, if we start saying that you get a second chance after death, right, which is one of the directions that this goes, then how seriously are you going to take your life now? You might say, well, I'll do whatever I want to do now because I'm sure I'll make the right decision after I die. It'll be more real then, something of that nature. And Augustine rightly anticipates that this line of thinking will ultimately, uh, you know, he doesn't use this word, he doesn't know, it, but it will ultimately forge the doctrine of purgatory. Right? This is If you carry out this line of thinking uh, in that direction, that's what becomes established. And so Augustine says, I don't, I'm not so sure about this, and moves away from it, pushes against it. Today, we think Peter isn't talking about... There are good reasons to think that Peter is not talking about any kind of herring with hell. He's using very particular language. And it was very confusing to the church until you get to the 19th century and we discover a book that had been lost for centuries. There are numerous references in the ancient world to the book of Enoch. But we didn't have a copy until we discovered one. In the book of Enoch, you may remember Enoch is this character who doesn't get a lot of attention in the Old Testament. He's righteous, he walks with God, and then he's taken up. He doesn't die, right? And that's about all you get. He's the grandfather, great-grandfather of Noah, one of the two. And so that's, that's kind of the story of Enoch. But in Judaism, Enoch was a hugely significant figure. And they actually wrote an entire book about his life and why he was significant called the book of Enoch, right? Pretty simple, Now, the interesting thing about the book of Enoch is the first 36 chapters is called the book of Watchers. The book of Watchers is about, uh, in Genesis 6, there's kind of a random passage that is peculiar. And it says, just prior to the flood, that some angels decided to come down to earth and they fell in love with uh, and wanted to know, in the biblical sense, uh, human women. Their offspring are giants, and they're punished, right? So the book of Enoch it spends a long time talking about this story, which we get, you read it, and you're like, what? And then you just go on with the flood narrative, and you just kind of pretend that I don't know what that was or that it was there. The book of Enoch goes on about this at length, and the, um, the, these angelic supernatural beings who are imprisoned become known as the Watchers. Now, if you've seen the Noah movie with Russell Crowe, you should have kind of an "oh" moment, right? The big stone creatures that are called the Watchers—they get all of that out of the Book of Enoch. It's not just made up. It's now um, the Book of Enoch was very popular in Peter's day. It was very influential and widely respected within Judaism. And we also know that the Noah story was weirdly popular in Asia Minor. Did you know, four or five Roman emperors printed coins with Noah on the coin. And they thought that the Ark had come to rest somewhere in their vicinity, and so it's a very popular story. If you take all these factors together, well, there are a few others, which I'm just not going to believe. If you if you have any more questions, the, there's a number of re, other reasons to think that Peter is talking about this particular story. He's making reference to the book of Enoch. So what he is saying is, Peter, in a sense, um, if you read through that now, it says, in which... He Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison very particular language right which is almost certainly referring to the watchers right Jesus has gone to proclaim his victory towards the supernatural evil spirits that have been held in prison since the days of Noah In other words what Peter is saying he says you know the grandest most evil beings in our history as a people Jesus has proclaimed his victory over them. He's saying that Jesus' kingship is cosmic. It's over everything. There is no aspect of creation or universe or the supernatural realm that has not been left, uh, that is not outside of his authority. And Peter says this emphatically in verse uh, 22. Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, Peter is saying Jesus is not just king, he is the king. And as you, early church, are wrestling with whether or not to be faithful, you need to keep in mind that you're not talking about just, oh, should I worship this little deity as opposed to this little deity? Jesus is the king of all deities, of all supernatural beings. And when you think about not being faithful and moving away from faithfulness, you are in rebellion against the only king that truly matters if you think about that for a moment if we believe that jesus truly is that king in which before whose feet all judgment will transpire without exception it wouldn't matter what suffering came upon you right you would want to be faithful to be vindicated on that day before him to be seen with approval to honor him right if he is that king and that's what peter is saying as you toy around with moving away from worshiping Jesus, understand who you're moving away from. He is the king. Now, that does bring some tension for us because Jesus is king. We would think, well, Jesus should be protecting us and watching after us. And we would think that a king would protect his subjects in certain ways. And then we engage suffering and it's uncomfortable for us. But we realize that the suffering is intended to be an important part of our growth of our development. Look at chapter 4, 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, have you ceased from sin? Is Peter saying that if you just suffer, suddenly sin will be done away with? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when you suffer for righteousness... You have a decision to be made, and if you decide to continue to suffer for righteousness as opposed to then engaging some sort of sin to find relief, right, and thereby suffering for unrighteousness, like Ted's decision to start drinking and going down that path, right, if you make that decision, then sin is increasingly put to death. You're making a decision to be done with sin, with the Gentile way of living, and instead you trust the king to the extent that whatever befalls you, you say, I trust the king. He knows what is best. He orchestrates all things. And he's making me obedient. He's making me new through the suffering that I have to endure. And if this is the road for Christ, then why should we expect that it is different? The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 5, verse 8, Although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How else would we expect to learn obedience than through what we suffer? And we learn that suffering is a gift. Suffering is the gift by which we grow up. It is the gift by which we are, our old selves are whittled away and we have the opportunity to be made new, to be made whole in Him. Or we can turn to that sin and go to old ways and suffer for unrighteousness. Ultimately, when we are faithful, this is the gospel that is preached. If you look at chapter 4, verse 6, "...for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead." dead meaning those who are spiritually dead in this world, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way that God does. When we suffer faithfully for righteousness' sake and don't return to living in the way that the Gentiles do, we tell the story of the gospel, we tell the story of the righteous one who has suffered for the unrighteous. And in that, the dead have the opportunity to then come alive again. When suffering befalls you, what is your disposition? To seek your own relief or to honor the king? This is the decision that Peter puts before the church. It's a fork in the road, so to speak. As I read the passage and thought about Melody this week, I couldn't help but think of her as a picture of suffering for righteousness. Melody is on staff with CRI. She is a member here. She was part of the team going to India. What you may not know about Melody is that she has uh, years and years invested in India. Uh, She has seen that project started. She has seen it develop. Uh, There are children of leaders in India who are named Alan and Melody. The first church was named after Melody. ...for her work there, that she goes frequently and has deep relationships with the leadership and loves the children there. And as the team arrived in India, even though she had a visa, the Indian government said, you're not coming in. We don't know exactly why, but probably the, the frequency of her visits on a tourist visa raised the red flag. Now for Melody, unless something changes in the Indian government, she will never see those people again. She's cut off from all of those relationships and she won't be able to return to the country... A woman who has devoted time and energy and money to promoting the kingdom of God in a foreign place that does not have the gospel in a robust sense and has seen wondrous fruit from her labors and God permits suddenly for her to be cut off. Your relationships are done and you don't get to go and see what becomes of your labors there. As she wept in an airport waiting room, right, to to board a flight to come home, Right, she suffered for righteousness. As Alan listened to his weeping wife on the phone, and was totally powerless to do anything, as she's just sitting in a waiting, you know, a secure waiting room in an airport in Calcutta, that's suffering for righteousness too. Now, in the midst of that, they can decide what to do. Uh, Melody may come back and say, "Well, uh, suffering for the sake of righteousness is uh, isn't cracked up, you know? Is it? How's that go?" That's it. Thank you. Isn't what it's cracked up to be. And she, said, she may come home and say, I'm going to go into banking. Night, night, night. It's not even 9 to 5 anymore. It's 9 to 4. Pet peeve as I tried to go to the bank at 4.30 this week. Right? And you don't take anything home. You're just done. And I don't have to worry about all of these hard, heartbreaking issues. Now, that wouldn't necessarily be a decision of sin. Right? Necessarily. Right? But can you see, can you feel... You know, when suffering comes for righteousness oh, there is always the voice why, why keep being righteous why labor for the kingdom why not just back up and sit down and wait Jesus is coming back eventually or I'm dying so I'll just hang, hang out and wait for things to play out you know, I think Melody will continue to labor for righteousness or another example Jonathan Bailey grew up in the church, a pastor's kid, sadly, and uh, answered many altar calls, right, and professed his faith in Jesus and followed him and uh, over and over again found himself just living in the world and not really experiencing any real sense of faith. And eventually he had a friend who actually uh, converted in a more substantive way. And the change that he saw in his friend, right, this willingness to give up the Gentile way of life—they were hard partiers—and embrace something different—was a testimony to Jonathan, which is what Peter's saying to staying to the church. You can be a testimony for Christ in your suffering for righteousness. His friend becomes a testimony. Jonathan ultimately uh, converts, and he says uh, this uh, of now looking back. Yes, I had it all wrong. Christian faith wasn't about going to church, being a morally good person, believing the right things, or having some emotional experience. It was about God's love uh, filling and freeing me. And so he goes on to talk about this a bit. And he says, um, de- I've dedicated my life to apprenticeship with Jesus. That doesn't mean faith has been easy, but it has been the most thrilling adventure of my life. Battling habits of pride, anger, lust, and gluttony has become an adventure. I've started successful businesses with my twin brother, always the risk takers. I have a beautiful family. I've also buried a child. Through the joy and the pain, Jesus has shared his eternal life with me, filling and freeing me. Well, the only way Jonathan knows that is that he's now entered a realm of discipleship in which he's willing to suffer for righteousness. So whether his business venture with his brother is going well or he's bearing a child... He acknowledges and respects and lives for the king. As suffering bears down on your life. That's what Peter holds out for you. Honor the king and be free and find life. Or look for it elsewhere and just experience more suffering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness to us. We praise You that Jesus, by virtue of His righteousness, by virtue of His obedience under the cross, by virtue of His complete trust in Your authority and will, uh, He has been vindicated and seated at the right hand of the Father, and all principalities and powers and authorities come under His authority. And so, Jesus, we praise You this morning as King, and we thank You that we have been called out of darkness and into the light of Your reign and rule. Would you forgive our foolishness in which we rebel against your authority and turn to other things for life? And would you help us to remember that there is no aspect of the entire cosmos that does not come under your reign? And so help us to trust you in all things. And if we are called to trod the same path that you were, to learn obedience through suffering, so be it. Let us suffer. Let us learn obedience. And let us be set free.